There's a proverb that goes something like this. Well-fed people have many problems. Hungry people have only one. I wish that proverb were true in Yemen, but the fact is the starving people there have many problems. It isn't just famine. It's also the Saudi Arabian-led bombing campaign, supported by the United States, that has made Yemen one of the most dangerous places on earth, and the naval blockade, again supported by the United States, that has led to widespread starvation. The new documentary, Hunger Ward, profiles two young children who don't understand or care about any of that. One of them is a six-year-old girl named Abir, who weighs 15 pounds. I'm not great with enunciation, so let me be clear. That's one five pounds. There are newborns who weigh 10 pounds. She's six years old. The United Nations World Food Program says that 16 million people in Yemen are food insecure, and more than 1 million pregnant or breastfeeding women, and more than 2 million young children suffer from acute malnutrition. Our guest today, Sky Fitzgerald, is the director of Hunger Ward, which is nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary Short Subject, and portrays doctors at two different Hunger Wards who are trying to save the children of Yemen from hideous malnutrition. You can watch this excellent film on Paramount Plus or for free on Pluto TV, and if you do, I can almost promise that you're going to want to do something about what you're going to see. And you can, as Sky Fitzgerald explains, you can give directly to the Hunger Wards in the film at hungerward.org. Your money will go very far toward helping some of the children who are most desperately in need of help in the entire world. I'm Tim Molloy from Movie Maker, and here's my talk with Sky Fitzgerald, director of Hunger Ward. Well, Sky Fitzgerald, welcome to Movie Maker, and thank you for making Hunger Ward an incredible movie and a very hard movie to watch, if I'm being honest. Can you set up for people who aren't familiar with the film or with the situation in Yemen, what this is about? Yeah, in, in, a, in a nutshell, it's really a film about war, but sort of obliquely. It's about the effects of the human-caused um, uh, famine in Yemen, which is being caused by the current conflict, uh, mostly between this, uh, the Saudi coalition, which the U.S. is a part of, and then the Houthi-held rebel north. Um, and the, the geopolitics of it are that uh, there's a blockade over the country um, that is preventing food and medicine from entering properly, as well as diesel fuel to transport foodstuffs, which has resulted in a famine in the country. There's just no other way of saying it. And yeah. so starvation is really being used as a tool of war, despite that being explicitly prohibited, excuse me, prohibited uh, by the UN. So it's really quite a horrible human caused famine that most of the world simply doesn't know about. Yeah, I had the thought watching this, that everything else on Twitter, everything else, you know, popping up on streaming and everything else that competes for our attention is just distracting us from this one of the worst places in the world in terms of human suffering. And I felt really embarrassed not to know more about this, not to be like a total you know, virtue signal or something, but I, I really felt stupid that I wasn't, that I didn't know more about this and hadn't done anything about it. 
Yeah, you know, and I, I don't think anyone should feel, um, you know, like ignorant for not knowing about it because the fact is that, um, you know, the, 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 there's an active attempt to prevent us in the West from learning about this conflict and our own complicity in the conflict. And, and, and one of the ways that that's done is um, the, the coalition which blocks food and diesel from entering the country also prevents journalists and filmmakers from getting in to tell this story, but also local journalists and filmmakers are prevented from getting these stories out and they're actively disappeared, they're actively jailed, and they're actively killed, frankly, um, because you know Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis don't want us here to know that starvation is being used um, as, as a tool in conflict because it is such a horrific idea, right? Um, and, and, you know, you said that you were sort of bothered by this, Tim, and, and you know, I think that's okay too. You know, what's that old quote, um, art disturbs and science reassures, I think is how it goes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm a believer in that. I, th- I think part of our role as, as artists and as filmmakers is to raise the flag and say, you know, look at this. We ought to be looking at this. And is it hard to look at? Yeah, maybe it is hard to look at. And maybe that's okay. Yeah. You know, I, I got mad at the situation watching it. And at some point, I think I was mad at you. I had that that silly thought of why doesn't this person put down the camera and feed this kid? And then obviously we all have that at watching every documentary. And it's just because it's like the easiest emotion to access. And then when I thought about it for two seconds, it was like, well, I'm saying this from a comfortable place. While they went there, um, they've started this website which I hope you'll give the URL for where people can help. They're drawing attention to this. And by photographing this, they're actually doing much more good than they could do um, by helping any individual child. I mean, there's, what are there? Hundreds, thousands? Yeah. Yeah, 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 there's been um, over 400,000 people who have died of starvation um, since the start of the war, which is just, it's. It, I mean, that's mind boggling, right? That's just such a huge number and i think that's one of the dangers in this um geopolitical crisis and any geopolitical crisis is is you know the the concept of compassion fatigue right it's it's a real thing but and we you know i was very intentional about really not trying to tell uh, a broad spectrum story of the conflict and fully contextualize it because i think it falls into that sand trap right of people are going to be numbed by the numbers. And I felt like the way through that as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, was to focus on the individual, to focus on the, the individual efforts of two healthcare workers who had dedicated their lives to saving this child, Abir, and this child, Omema. To me, there's a, there's a power in that singularity. You know, there's a power in showing you this child's struggle to survive because of the war, um, so so that was our approach was going narrow and and you know it, it was compounded by the realities within which we had to operate, which were we had limited amount of time in the country, um, and it's a conflict zone, you know, and so we had to really do everything we could to make sure that we collaborated in a way that protected those we were working with as well as our own team. I wanted to ask how you found, I hope I'm saying her name right, Omema and Abir. Um, Abir in particular, just 
I mean, I have a son who's weighs about 23 pounds. He's 10 months old <laughs> and she is six years old and weighs 15 pounds, which is so beyond heartbreaking. I don't even know where to begin. How did you, how did you find them and how did you decide to focus on them? Um, so we had, we had longstanding relationships with the two healthcare workers with Makia in the North and then, and then Dr. Aida in the South. And because we had that trust already built up long before we arrived, um, you know, the, the secondary part of this, of, of the, the, you know, the building of the trust with the families and the children really was one of our primary tasks when we arrived. Um, so we had long discussions with all the families who had kids in the clinics. We talked with the kids, of course. And, and um, as soon as Makia introduced us to a beer and I saw this child who was like any other child in the world, any other six-year-old, and yet she was so stricken with the chronic effects of starvation that she couldn't even smile. Yeah. That just gutted me. And, um, and so we just started following her once, once the grandmother and the mother said they wanted us to try to tell her story. And I was so moved in a profound way by this girl who was trying to smile. She was trying to thrive despite all the odds. And, um, you know, we started to pull for her. We really wanted her to, to physically turn around and, and to thrive again as a young child and smile and play with a balloon like any other six-year-old wants to, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, to me, her story is one of the hopeful ones because in fact, you know, we, we stay in contact with as many of the families as we can. And of course the health healthcare providers and she's thriving now. So we get photos from the North of Yemen on a relatively regular basis and a beer's doing great actually. And she's thriving and she's gaining healthy weight. So, you know, there is hope, right? There is the opportunity for individual success. Um, if, uh, you, you know, if people commit to it. And Omaima, is she also doing well? She is. She's another. She's another hopeful story. She. Um, uh, she. We actually tracked her back to her home village on the west coast of Yemen, and um, and was actually there when she saw her. Uh, I think it's ten siblings and and mother and father for the first time. And it was this incredibly joyous scene where only a month before she had been. You know, it was hard for her even to stand up. Um, by herself, because as you noted, she's weighed 24 pounds as a 10 year old. And, and by the time she made it back to her village and she'd been properly diagnosed and she was on a different diet and she had some med medicine, um, she was literally dancing with her siblings when she arrived. So, you know, it is possible to turn this around because it's a human caused famine, right? And it just needs a certain level of care and resource to do it. And that was the sort of the hope we were looking for throughout the filming of this is where is the hope within this, you know, quite difficult context of war and conflict. A lot of times when you hear about conflicts like this, you think about maybe giving some money and you worry, well, this will just be taken by a corrupt government or something like that. And it will never find its way to the right people. Um, that's not really true in this situation, right? I mean, the United States is part of this and that we're supporting Saudi Arabia, which is leading the coalition, which is, allowing the star or causing the starvation. Um, how far do American dollars go? I mean, if you give a hundred dollars to this, what does it do? And how do you, how do you do that? 
Yeah, so, you know, it's a great question from a practical sense because, um, you know, we can't intervene. This, this, is, this is one of those films that's, you know, it's about something that's happening and unfolding right now, right? Like, Omeima is undergoing treatment right now, and those in her cohort of this generation being affected by the war are going through the same thing right now in the two clinics we show in the film. And so um, we wanted to make sure that the film could become a vehicle for intervention with civil society. And so we've done that in two ways. One, we partnered with the Friends Committee for National Legislation in DC, which is sort of the, the governmental intervention piece of it to try to convince our own government to withdraw support for the Saudi blockade, which can have a real and meaningful impact um, once successfully done. And the second piece is the donations to the two clinics. So we've built this paradigm through a nonprofit partner where people can donate on our website, which is hungerward.org. And that money goes directly through our 501c3 partner to the two clinics shown in the film. And $50 a month um, will support one of these childs, uh, one of these children for a full month for all of the care, the, the, the blood tests they need, because sometimes they need blood tests to help diagnose sort of their, their blood chemistry and what medicine they can take and what they can't, as well as a specialty diet um, that then the clinics provide for the children to ensure they go through the different phases, phases of sort of thriving again, because you can't just give them any food stuff, depending on how deep in on severe acute malnutrition they are. You have to phase in different food stuffs. So $50 a month actually pays for everything. And, and yeah, exactly. That it is, it, it's quite astounding. It goes a long ways. And I mean, just to be clear, this isn't like a charity that has incredible overhead and like the movie gets some of it and Hollywood gets no. their share. I mean, this is $50. that goes directly to helping. It one goes directly to Dr. Al-Sadiq, who you see in the film in the South. And it goes directly to Makia, Nurse Makia in the North, full yeah. stop. I mean, I mean, we have to go through a financial you know, mechanism, obviously. And there's, you know, but it, other than that, it goes directly into their pockets and they use it at those, as those, at those two facilities. Yeah. I'm going to break my journalistic um, neutrality and <laughs> that when we're done talking, because it's, it, yeah. you can't, you can't see the movie and not want to do something. And I know a lot of people who've seen the film feel exactly that way. It's, it's kind of impossible not to. How did you first get this access? I mean, as hard as it was to get into Yemen, Ooh, you know, this is, um, your question goes to the heart of why you don't see films coming out of Yemen, right? Um, you know, I mentioned that, um, you know, the, the coalition really doesn't want these stories to get out. And so part of one of the hardest tasks uh, in this entire project was getting access, right? And and we also attempted to, to build out um, sort of work with local collaborators, local filmmakers, um, on the ground. But as I mentioned earlier, it's very, very difficult for local filmmakers and, um, and journalists to get the story out as well, because they are, they are killed and detained and tortured if they do these kinds of stories. So for us, we felt like we had the cover at least of foreign visas, which took us um, almost nine months to get um, through the embassy in DC, because there's a standing embargo against visas to journalists and filmmakers to get in. So we had to work a lot of political angles very carefully uh, for a very long time before we were given access. And then it was limited. We only had 30 days. And uh, if we overstayed it, we would have probably been thrown in jail, or kicked out. I mean, you're an American filmmaker in Oregon. 
I tried to get a visa to China and I think of what a hassle mm-hmm. that was. And China is nowhere near as, yeah. as difficult a country to get into as Yemen. Can you talk about specifically what questions you had to answer, what you had to say? Did you have to lie? I mean, how did you do this? Um, no, we didn't have to lie. Um, you know, my, my um, approach on some of those delicate conversations was to be honest and, and to be very general. Right. And so I tried to keep it at a 30,000 foot view. And, and basically we, what, what we said with everybody who we needed to sort of pitch it to to gain access was, listen, we're doing a film that um, uh, takes a humanitarian view on the on the conflict in Yemen and really looks at the effects of the conflict on civilians. Yeah. That's it. That's what we're doing. Um, and, and, you know, uh, sometimes I would mention that it doesn't have an, you know, an overtly explicit a pol- political point of view, right? But we may contextualize some of it with obviously, you know, the context of the war, which as you know, we do only at the end of the film, really as people start to want to know why and how can this happen? And that that was very intentional as well because um, I'm a big believer that if you, that, you know, that cinema is best suited to show people, right? Mm-hmm. And to help people feel something. And if we can get them to the end of the film and, and they've got 50 questions they want to answer all of a sudden, that will engage the psyche and the mind, right? So I was trying to pose questions as much as I could so that people would engage once they finish the film. Um, can you talk about the intrusion of the camera and how you avoided the intrusion of the camera. I mean, you capture people in the most horrible moments, people whose children have just died, um, doctors who are having breakdowns. This sounds like a, this, I'm making it sound like this film is agony to watch and it's not, I mean, it's, it's so well done and you don't, um, you don't have a heavy hand. Like you do, you do a good job of telling the story in a very, um, I don't want to say dispassionate, but a not leading way that lets us draw our own conclusions. But the camera gets to a lot of things that I'm surprised you were able to get. Did you have to have conversations with everyone beforehand who you filmed? Did you have conversations with them afterwards? How did you get this kind of access and avoid having people just look at the camera and say, get out of here? Um, you know, that, 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 that whole um, tension uh, between access and, and honoring the access on a moment-to-moment basis was very real and very delicate and very nuanced. And it was something that that uh, we had to be really sensitive to every moment that we were in these clinics. Um, you know, I'm a big believer um, in directness um, and of, of not flinching as a filmmaker from a moment, even if it's a hard moment. And, and also trying to convey that to viewers by not looking away with the camera, but also not cutting away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in the classic um, best usage of verite, I think, you know, there's a power in the unfolding of the moment, right? If you stay with it and you're patient, but also don't cut away from that moment, which is exactly why we have, you know, quite a few shots in this film that are nearly, a, you know, a minute and a half long without an edit, where you just watch, you track, a grieving mom as she walks down the hallway and, and sort of breaks down as she understands what has happened to her daughter. Or we track a healthcare worker who goes through her own grieving process, right? Um, you know, there's, to me, that's a much, 
by placing the viewer there and not cutting away, you experience it in a more visceral way, in a different way, because you're there in the moment. Mm -hmm. We were only allowed to do that because of relationships, right? Because we stuck with these families and because we had long conversations with them before these events happened about why we were there, why we hoped to collaborate with them and if they wanted to collaborate with us. So yeah. it, was, it was a conversation, right? That was dynamic and ongoing and never ended. Um, and we, the way that we executed it was very, very simple. We were simply two people, two cameras, long lenses, right? With no boom pole so that we could sort of tuck ourselves into the scenes and move as little as possible to try to capture what was happening, to be as least obtrusive as possible. So in that way, as being a really small team paradigm, we were accepted relatively quickly because we weren't constantly intruding on the scene. We never asked anyone to do anything. We simply observed and then sort of caught what we could without trying to intrude on the scene. And all your efforts are meaningless if you don't pull it off from a filmmaking standpoint. I, I don't understand how you were able to get the sound that you got without a without a boom. I mean, how did that? It's amazing what you can do with a couple of lavalier mics, right? And uh, and shotgun mics. So we we would put you know lav mics on the nurses and doctors who we had these long-standing relationships with, but you know we never put them on on the families at all. Um, so all that sound was captured either from a lav mic um, or from, from a shotgun on a camera. So we had four audio sources, right? At any given time, typically. But you, you are pointing out one of the practical, practical out, you know, challenges we had in this project, which is you know, my, my sound mixer always hates me when I come back from these projects because there is no boom, there is no perfect audio. And um, you know, it's, it's a compromise that I make, Tim that I'm happy to make because I am just such a profound believer that cinema is and ought to be visually a visually driven medium. It's just how I speak. It's how I use it. And I think um, most often people will forgive you um, if the audio is not perfect, um, if, yeah. if it's strong visually, right? I just think it, I think the cinema is a, is a world and a language and a syntax of images. And that's how I try to tell these stories. Well, I mean, not to blow smoke, but this is a case where it actually can make a difference. I mean, getting the shot or not getting the shot, I, again, I don't want to be overdramatic, but could be a matter of life and death. Like it could be the decision of whether someone is going to contribute to this or help with this or whether someone in Congress is going to see your film and learn about something they didn't know about. So, yeah. I mean, it's not, it, it, I'm not just being like a tech head who can't, see the forest for the trees here. I mean, it really was important that you were able to get the shots that you got. The, the other thing that really surprised me is um, we're all sort of sick of drone shots. And <laughs> I, thought, I thought your drone shot at the end paired with the facts that you're giving in text was incredible because you have the camera moving and as it's rotating, the words are staying in place and you have this dizzying feeling um, and just sort of that sense of being overwhelmed that I think really reflects the ideas of the film a lot. Was that intentional? I'm glad you bring that up because that's something we were, I was very intentional about. And, and it came out of sort of this, this notion that, you know, you're, you're, 
at least in nonfiction film for me, I'm, I'm constantly having to sort of evolve my approach in the field and respond to what I discover. And that last drone shot came directly out of this theme, which, which I, I experienced over and over again in the field of, of filming with all these families and these doctors. And it was this theme of, of feeling unsettled and displaced and uncomfortable uh, you know, because these, these these clinics are very dynamic and, and people are passing all the time. And, you know, there's mortars dropping outside sometimes, a small arms fire. And I wanted to find a way to reflect that sense of disorientation and, and almost vertigo, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. some of these people feel at the loss of a child or this war pounding outside. And I thought, how could I do that visually again? To reflect those themes, and I wanted I wanted to 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 experiment with that a little bit uh, as a as a filmmaker, and so you know as you may remember, it's sort of it's the same point of view as the opening shot of the film, where we descend with a static non-rotational frame as an opening, right, just to introduce the viewer to the facility, and then on the end, it's really the same frame, and then we slowly right like to rotate as you notice, and I was intentionally trying to create this sense of vertigo. Um, by placing the, you know, the subtitles in the center of the frame, which sort of anchor the frame. And, and, you know, there is a sense once that frame comes to rest, finally, it's a, you know, it's a visual aberration where it seems the frame, you start to get a little bit dizzy as it comes to rest. So um, I'm still hoping to see that on a big screen, <laughs> which I haven't, because I think it's really going to work quite well in on a 30 or 50 foot screen. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was really effective. Uh, the other sort of recent cliche you didn't do was inject yourself into the film. Um, was there a point that you felt in danger? Was there a point that you felt that the production was in danger? Um, yeah, yeah, there was, you know, what, what you don't see, what don't, you don't hear about in this, this film is, is the incredible challenge of doing the film, sure. But this this film isn't and shouldn't be about me, the filmmaker or the other filmmakers involved. It should be about these children and these, I, I see them as heroic healthcare workers saving children's lives on a daily basis. I mean, our, our trials and travails were nothing compared to what they face on a daily basis. And so I, I just felt like that's not, I didn't want to be a narcissistic filmmaker who sort of made it about us. I wanted to, to showcase um, you know, the, the daily work of these heroic uh, healthcare workers. So yes, were we detained once? Uh, you know, yes, we were. Did we have to fight hard to sort of be released from that detainment to continue our work? Yes. Did we have to transfer footage, you know, using generators that often failed and then we'd stay up all night trying to work our Franken, Frankenstein-like, you know, um, apparatus of, of drives and computers to transfer footage. Even those fundamentals were very difficult, but they didn't really matter. Um, and so that's why I really, you know, I try not to throw too much focus on, on the back end of the film so much. I think that's a great place to end. Just so I don't get this wrong, who detained you and what was that like? Um, so each, each area in the south of the country side of sort of controlled each district by different um, militias and warlords. So you have to travel very, very carefully. And um, so uh, there's a major gate leading into the city of Aden in the south. And, um, you know, uh, the warlord who controlled that gate simply detained us um, and, and it, it 
we think it was the early uh, part of a mechanism for a kidnap and ransom attempt. Um, but fortunately, we had had dinner a couple times with a very high-ranking member of the local uh, Southern Transitional Council, which is another armed militia group in the area. And he'd become sort of uh, a colleague of ours. And he called the warlord on our behalf and he released us. Okay, I think I do have to use that. <laughs> you do what you need to do. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thank you for this film. Can you say where people can find it and also where people can donate if they want to? Yeah, um, so, so uh, Hunger Ward just launched on Paramount Plus on Friday and it's also on Pluto TV. So those are the two primary streaming platforms. Um, and then hungerward.org is our website and you can find all things engagement there um, in terms of how to engage your own senator and representative as well as to donate directly to the two clinics uh, showcased in the film. That was Sky Fitzgerald, director of Hunger Ward. And that URL again is hungerward.org hunger, W-A-R-D dot O-R-G. Thanks, and see you very soon.